Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface and to hold space for meaningful conversations. We're going to talk about life and love and basically everything in between. This is a place where done is better than perfect, where quality triumphs quantity, and where you can really just come as you are. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it, y'all. Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have fun too. Scout's honor. I promise you this. I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, you are so welcome. And before we get started, pause and make sure you're subscribed to the Refine Collective podcast on iTunes so that each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And if you're an old friend, um, welcome back. Hi there. I already know you're all subscribed and good to go. But would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be incredibly grateful for that. Now, I used to feel like all weird and awkward about asking you to do this, but then I listened to Oprah's podcast and even she asks her listeners to do it. In the podcast world, those subscribes and ratings and reviews really, really help us. So thank you in advance. You are the best. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, find me on Instagram at The Refined Woman or my podcast specific account at The Refined Collective and send me a message. I would absolutely love to hear from you. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. I am learning every day to allow the space between where I am and where I want to be to inspire me and not terrify me. That's a quote by Tracy Ellis, and I think the perfect way to set the tone for this episode. Today, we are talking about everything from bias to how to develop a growth mindset to identifying this myth of being a good person and how it is keeping us stuck. We're talking about racism and anti-racism and white privilege and a lot of things that are just really, really important to be talking about, especially today, especially in our cultural climate. So I want to invite you to be curious about your own heart, where you're at, how you're showing up, how you're not showing up. And when you find and discover those places in you that might be out of alignment instead of shutting down, judging yourself, falling into like this victim mode, use it as an opportunity to grow because all of us are here to grow. So navigating the conversation with me is an incredible woman and dear friend, Gina Marinelli. She is a leadership development professional with more than 14 years of experience helping people, teams, organizations, and communities grow. She has facilitated learning experiences for thousands of leaders and has coached over 1,200 hours. Some of her recent clients include Pixar Animation Studios, Deloitte, Cornell University, and Network of Executive Women Summit, and so many more. Y'all, like, homegirl is a baller. And she made a free resource guide for you in interest of this specific episode called the 10 Tips to Practice Growth Mindset and Notice Bias. You can get that for free at ginamarinelli.com slash TRW. That's J-E-A-N-A. 
M-A-R-I-N-E-L-L-I.com slash TRW, the 10 tips to practice growth mindset and notice bias. So get on that, download that, pause the podcast right now and get that download. And let's go ahead and dive into this very important conversation. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. And today we have leadership development expert and coach, Gina Marinelli. She focuses on strength-based leadership, diversity and equity and inclusion, and has been doing this work and honestly changing lives. Homegirl has changed my life for over 10 years now. So I just like gave you a big mouthful, but let's just go ahead and talk to Gina. Hey girl. Hi. How are you? I am fantastic and so happy to be sitting here with you. I know. We are sitting in Gina's Manhattan apartment. Your apartment makes me feel like I'm a, I'm not a grown-up. <laughs> like, like the gallery wall. Your color-coordinated wall of books is so inspiring. That is so sweet. Because when I opened the door, I was like, all right, you're talking to Kat about what it means to be a work in progress and your apartment's not as clean as you want it to be and your hair, my hair's still in a knot. And I was like, legitimately thought, okay, you're just modeling being a work in progress because things are not perfect right now. Yes. So far. Oh my gosh. Like, and I love as soon as I open the door, you're like, I'm living my 2020 goal of embracing sweatpants. <laughs> it's like, Yes. I feel like it was, what night was it? Just a couple of nights ago. It was Monday night. I was literally in sweatpants until I left to go somewhere for like an hour at 8 p.m. <laughs> I was like, it counts. Like I got dressed today. It may have been at like 8 p.m. Just for like, basically for show. Whereas I think when I went somewhere at 8 p.m. Uh, to an event with iPhone Woman, I might've been wearing sweatpants. Hey, you know what? I love that. I'm for it. Let's talk about you, who you are, what you're up to. I mean, there's obviously a very specific reason why. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a very long time. Um, I've been so challenged by our friendship. And you're the person in our community that is constantly, like, asking why. Like, why are things the way they are? And, like, how can we be better? And... You are not shy from growth, and I just, I love that about you. But you sort of have had, in the past years, this personal journey of reckoning of, quote-unquote, am I a good person? What makes a, quote-unquote, good person? Does that terminology even serve me as a human? And also coming to this awareness of white privilege, racism in America, and your own personal biases, and... It's, I feel like it's kind of become like your megaphone mission. I don't know if that rings true, but I would love to hear about that, that story for you. Yeah, I think you know, to answer one of your questions directly, I don't think the idea of a good person serves us at all. And like, if I, if I had a magic wand, which no one does, but imagine that I did, I would just get rid of the idea of a good person mm-hmm. altogether in the U.S. and globally, but especially in the U.S., and move in service of something better, something that, that Dolly Chug defines as goodish in her book, The Person You Mean to Be. Um, but even before getting into that, I think I was uh, grew up in San Diego, grew up Catholic with a deep, active like faith and relationship with Jesus. Like I know there's a lot of different versions of Catholicism. Some of them are cultural. Mine was like super personal and faith based, and so. 
grew up with that and like this immense love of our country and feeling like America's the greatest country in the world. I had an American flag retainer at one point. Like, as a 16-year-old, like, as an 8-year-old, it was like, you're 16 and you got to get braces one more time to fix that gap. Like, what are you going to put on the retainer? And I put on an American flag. Yes, you did. America. That's right. So, like, this idea, like, two core ideas of we're all created in the image of God. Like, that's part of our faith. And we, like, live in this incredible country that's free and that was founded on freedom. And I feel like I went to USC for undergrad, and when I graduated and moved to New York uh, and taught in Harlem, like it began the journey of seeing all the ways that our country is not free. Mm-hmm. That we we live in a country that you know has a constitution about freedom for men, but also the success of what has made this country great is built on you know unpaid slave labor and theft and genocide of Native Indigenous people that lived in the Americas. And the fact that we, the fact that I could graduate at the top of my class and passing the AP U.S. history test and all these academic honors and not knowing any of that, um, not knowing the real history that our country is built on the, the backs of Black and Brown bodies, labor, land, theft, genocide, that that's not acknowledged in such an open way, I think is really heartbreaking in many ways. And so for the last 15 years, my eyes are continually opened every day about just how untrue some of these narratives that we hold dear are. Does that resonate? Yeah, it does. And so you, it sounds like you kind of grew up, I mean, San Diego, I used to live there. It's kind of like this heaven on earth place, like slow paced, you got the water, you got Torrey Pines and USC, you know, private school, yep. very nice, wealthy yep. school. Uh, that's like sits in the middle of like a very impoverished part of LA. And then you move to Harlem, you become a teacher. So do you have any like memories or moments as a teacher in Harlem where you're like, wait a second, I had a privilege by just being white that someone who is a person of color has not had did you have any of those moments or can you think of any stories? Oh, so many. I mean, one of the reasons I, like, I, I think one of the threads here is that service was always such an important part of the, like, Jesuit Catholic faith. And so I grew up doing community service, worked in the, um, volunteered in the hospital as a candy striper, legitimately had the pinafore. Oh my gosh. Selling Beanie Babies on the, like, traveling hospital cart. One of the reasons I picked USC is because it has such a close relationship with the surrounding community, or at least USC sells itself as having a close relationship with the surrounding community. And there was the opportunity to teach in local schools as part of most of my undergraduate classes, which was awesome. So going and doing Teach for America instead of med school wasn't the biggest surprise because my heart was for service and for making the world a better place. Like I have often heard to much is given, much is required, right? We have privilege and responsibility. Um, but I remember, remember the first time I heard about Teach for America, I was like, wow, that's awful that everyone doesn't have the opportunity to get an amazing education. And so this is something I want to do and learn more about. And I remember meeting the amazing kids. I had the privilege of serving and I taught seventh and eighth grade. I taught photography. I taught science. The photography part was an elective thing that I had created. But by age seven and by 
seventh and eighth grade, so many of the amazing students I worked with had already been basically told they were worthless by other teachers and leaders. The school was not resourced. The kids had the absolute same desire and like love for life and learning and growth that I had as a kid, that other kids I knew had, but the environment, the environment that our school was in was not like remotely the same Mm -hmm. in terms of access and people looking at the students I worked with and saying like, you guys can achieve anything. And it's not just the teachers before them because, you know, there's, Looking back, I can see how many blind spots I had as a young, white, 22-year-old USC graduate with a Lacoste polo and then a <laughs> silk headband. Wow. Um, right? Picture it now. Yeah. Those, those were really big in 2005. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just there was such a gap between the America they were growing up in and the one I grew up in. And so I, I still think, I mean... I aspire to be someone who can always look back at yesterday or the day before or 15 years ago and be like, wow, I had so many blind spots, but I really did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like I I worked in education for a really long time and I still do some work in education. And I think what the breaking point for me was four years ago now, four summers ago in 2016, not related to the election, but related to the series of murders of unarmed black men by the police Mm. like in that first week of July that happened right in a row and realizing that like half the people I knew were grieving were emotionally bleeding didn't want to let their friends go outside Mm. their sort of their children their husbands their family members their loved ones they maybe didn't want to go outside themselves and then half the people I knew weren't phased by it. They hadn't noticed it. It wasn't circulating in their social media feeds. And if they did know about it, they didn't, they knew it was bad, but they didn't know what to say or anything to do. And when I stopped and looked at those two groups, I was like, most every person of color I know is in that first group, Mm -hmm. as is most of my education family from the work I've done uh, across the country. And most of my white Christian friends are in the second group. And I remember looking to a pastor of ours who ran a faith and work fellowship at the time, looking for guidance and saying, like, your voice is missing here. Um, And then that helped me realize that, wow, I've been in this work for 11 years at that point. And I've done so much work around race and equity and identity. And the church has never asked me to be better. Like the learning in this area absolutely came from God and came from God working through people. But the church never asked me to look at my own biases, to look at my identity as a privileged white woman. The church's theology of this was like, as long as you're giving money to do work, like mercy and justice work, and go on a mission trip to serve the poor, which has a lot of white saviorism, isn't it? As does Teach for America. But... Like, as long as you're giving your money or your resources or your time to help the poor and marginalized, you're good. Instead of, like, catalyzing Christians to say, I don't need to leave the role I'm in to go serve the poor and marginalized. I need to use the role I'm in as a consultant, as a banker, as a lawyer, as a manager, as a doctor, as a, you know, magazine editor or cultural leader, podcast host, I need to use this voice to change that because so much of what the Christian church is trying to do is 
tend to the effects of 400 years of systemic oppression mm-hmm. instead of addressing ourselves as part of mm. the cause of it. Yeah. And why do you think that white people are so scared to talk about racism today? Yeah. (laughs) Including myself (laughs) in everything that we're talking about. I think that white people are scared for a couple of reasons. One is that we have made, and I say we, white people, the people with the power to write the stories have made racism as something that is so bad and so evil that it's over there and it's in those people. Mm-hmm. The Charlottesville the Charlottesville rallies in 2017 gave us a really um, vivid picture of what a white supremacist looked look like, someone with a tiki torch. Or in our history books, we see people with white hoods. And we've made racism seem so evil that it can't possibly be in any of us when the reality is it is in all of us. We live in a racist society and a sexist society and we breathe in racist messages every day. So unless I am actively working as a white person to interrupt that racism, then I am saying and doing racist things all the time. Mm -hmm. And because we've made it like this other thing that's outside of ourselves, it makes people terrified to talk about it. and. Just like I want to see white Christians tend to the cause of oppression and poverty more than I do. Like the symptoms and the causes both. I'm not saying stop giving mercy and justice aid. Those programs are important. But like we got to identify ourselves as part of the problems to break mm-hmm. the cycle. Mm-hmm. But white Christians are more scared of being called racist. Most white people and most white Christians, not all can get more upset about being called racist than they are about racism itself. Mm-hmm. And that is heartbreaking to me, especially with the gospel. Because the gospel is like, we're all broken. We're made in the image of God and we're broken. And like our salvation is taken care of. But that should give us the freedom to explore how we're part of a racist system and how Jay Smooth says it's, these are like teeth brushing skills. We have to do it every single day. Mm-hmm. And if we're not doing it every single day, stuff gets really funky and mm-hmm. messed up. But it's not like... A root canal, like I had my bias or my racism removed um, years ago. And so I think we could learn to see it as a, a gesture of kindness and respect if someone pointed out that we said or did something that was racist. Yeah, I think I, I love your point of the fear being more about I'm not racist as opposed to like what's really happening, because I know for me, when like Black Lives Ma- the Black Lives Matter movement started, I mean, I literally had this conversation with a friend last night because I got matched with this person online. We started talking, and oh my gosh, this makes online dating so hard! Right? <laughs> and I, you know, we were talking, and you know, what are some things that are important to you? And I was like, you know, racial reconciliation is really important to me, like. It's, there's no way, sense, or form, or shape, whatever, that I've arrived in that. But I was like, the past few years of my life, I've become, like, really dedicated to learning mm-hmm. and listening and just asking myself questions. Why? Yeah. And um, so I was talking to this, this guy, and he was like, huh, I've never thought about that. And in my head, I was like, I can't date this person. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. But then I... What my friend reminded me of was that just a few years ago when the Black Lives Matter came out, 
I didn't understand it. And I was like, well, don't all lives matter? And I was going to put an article out there about like, black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. And thank God I had a team that like believed in me that we had it set up to where I didn't go live with anything unless it was like approved by the team. And they were like, okay, this is a problem. Yes, do all lives matter? Yes, but like black lives and people of color have been oppressed for centuries in America. And like, that's worth acknowledging. We need to talk about that. And that was for me when I started being like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I almost went live with this article. Like how terrible, how awful, like, oh my gosh, like what are my own biases? And then we started looking at our own like publication and refined woman and people we were having on the website and noticing it was like literally like a blonde white girl after blonde white girl. And I realized, wow, I've created like a white girl blog. And yes, I'm a white woman. I can speak to my experience, but that sort of like led me down this path of like, wow, what are my, what are my own biases? And if I don't have any people of color on my website, that's reflective of like who my work community is. And then let me look at my personal life. Do I have people of color in my personal life? Like why or why not? And so I think even just for me personally coming to a place of like, no one wants to be like told you're racist. Right. And I feel like one of the first things that I typically hear when the conversation gets brought up is, oh no, I know, I know black people. Which is a racist thing to say. <laughs> um, or no, I have black friends. And so I I still think that's like one of the first things that I hear. And I think if I can, if I'm just honest, like I was like, I'm not racist. Like I grew up as a minority in my middle school. Like we, my parents got divorced. We didn't have any money. So like to me, I even put myself outside of that conversation. But then my mom got remarried and we moved back up to like upper white middle class where there were like hardly any people of color in my graduating class. So I share all of that stuff just because I want to lead with vulnerability. I'm not sitting here saying like, all you people listening to this are racist and y'all need to figure your stuff out. Like I'm on a journey. Gina, you are on a journey. This episode of the Refined Collective Podcast is brought to you by my very own free guide for single women, six tips to activate your dating life. Raise your hand if dating as a woman of faith in today's swipe right, swipe left culture has ever felt like a total struggle fest. Or maybe being single in our culture today feels overwhelming, lonely, discouraging, frustrating. And maybe if you're being really honest, it can even feel hopeless. Listen, single gal to single gal, I totally get it. But did you know that doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results is known as the insanity cycle? Friend, it is time to walk into a freeing, exciting, and purpose-filled season of singleness. It's time to activate your dating life. I created a free guide for you, and by free, I mean zero dollars, called Six Tips to Activate Your Dating Life to equip you to shake things up in your season of singleness. You can grab it right now at bit.ly slash trwdatingtips. 
Now you will walk away knowing, number one, the biggest mindset shift that will transform how you show up in your dating life. Number two, I'm going to teach you how to get unstuck in your dating life. And three, I will show you the number one thing you can start doing today that will radically change your season of singleness. And finally, the three things I wish someone would have told me 10 years ago about dating. You don't have to wander around for years like I did, insecure, uncertain, and discouraged about your dating or lack thereof life. So if any of this resonates with you, pause and go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-R-W dating tips and grab your free guide. Again, that's bit.ly slash T-R-W dating tips. All right, let's get back to it. So what would you say to the person who is like, oh, I'm not racist? Yeah, I would say you are and we all are. And I would locate myself inside of that. And I would say, but that's not the worst thing. Being called racist isn't the worst thing. I would say we live and breathe in messages from a society that centers a white, heteronormative, dominant white dominant culture patriarchy like the the model of what a leader is in society is white male and christian and straight and like everything flows from that and so i would take the idea off of don't worry about being called racist like worry about what people are saying to you and learn from that and so we like to think of this idea of a good person as someone that is free of bias and mistakes that you know, is, is, is a pre-made good person and already says and does things right. That doesn't even align with the gospel. And yet the image of a good girl is so prevalent in Christian mm. circles. The idea, though, that there is such a thing of a good person is a problematic illusion because it's this binary notion that is seductive and it's misleading, like that you're either a good person or you're not. Mm. And we know that humans are more complex than that. We know that the gospel calls us to see is humanity is more complex than that. And so what happens when someone comes to me and says, hey, Gina, and I can use an example from two weeks ago. I was facilitating and a trusted colleague pointed out to me that I was facilitating a case study about how to manage across lines of difference, manage up and like work with your bosses across lines of difference. And we were in the middle of this case study and I was sussing out all these different reactions from people and a black woman offered something really powerful insight about how she couldn't have approached the situation the same way that an Asian male had just shared because of what she carries with her identity as a black woman. And it was really powerful. And I thanked her and went to the next person. I didn't respond or add anything to it, which I would never want to like add to or shape someone's answer when I'm facilitating. But the trusted advisor pointed out to me that there was a subtle shift in the difference in how I was neutral in my response to her versus how I praised some of what other people had said. Um, And this was at a break. And in that moment, I could feel my brain rising up to be like, but this was the first time I was doing this case study. But like, I've facilitated this in this way before because I wrote this yesterday. I was sick this, you you know, like we had to reschedule this because I had this insane stomach flu. My brain went to all the reasons why I moved on from her without adding something, mm-hmm. um, including that I, it's a really negative thing where 
people of privilege feel like they have to add on to or build an answer from a, a oppressed person in this case. At any rate, I could feel what we call the fixed mindset text rising up. The thing that wants to like double down and be like, no, 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 I'm a good person and let me prove it to you. Mm-hmm. And instead see it as a learning opportunity um, to go, oh, thank you so much for telling me this. And then like understanding more rather than trying to defend what I did. Mm-hmm. Because she's she's a, a partner. She was there in the room to support the learning. She knew that this woman was quiet and didn't speak much. So what she said was so powerful. And I had done something that gave her a slight level of erasure. Mm. And like Black women experience slight levels of erasure every single day in this country um, through microaggressions. And it's often described as like death by a thousand paper cuts. Can you give some examples of that? Of a microaggression? Mm -hmm. Um, Saying... uh, for example, saying like I have black friends is a microaggression because it's like tokenizing people of color. Anything that um, microaggression is a term by Daryl Wing Sue, and it's any it's basically anything that creates a lack of humanity or invisibility for a person of color or any sort of marginalized identity. So one that I hear all the time is when someone tells a person of color that they're articulate. Mm-hmm. because our country spent so much time saying that there's a difference in intellect um, between people of color and white people. Anything that says like, oh, you're so smart, the implication is like for a black person. Mm. Um, and so microaggressions are called microaggressions because they're little things that could seem invisible to the person saying them. Mm. That are that are super visible to the person receiving them. Yeah. Does that answer your question? It, it totally does, and I can't help but think of, and I don't even know if this is appropriate to like compare it to, because um, I don't ever want to say like I know what it's like to be an oppressed minority in America. I'm a I'm a white woman. Yeah. Um, but even as you're saying that, I think of so many things that have been said to me as a woman. Yes. You can get microaggressions as a woman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, that's like tap, tap, tap on my head. That's so cute that you have a business. Mm-hmm. Oh, fun. You're running a blog. And this happens a lot in dating as well is I don't know why this is on my mind right now, but it just is. Maybe it's, I've just gone on a lot of dates recently, but guys being really shocked that I'm smart mm, and how yeah. offended I feel at that. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I'm just pretty face over here, you know? I don't want to like hijack the conversation to that, but how appropriate is that to say like, I know what that's like in a sense as a woman without diminishing, like, I don't know what it's like to be a person of color, but I know what it's like to be spoken down to or condescended because of my gender. I think it's an important thing to like reflect on and use as a source of empathy without ever equating the two. Mm. Like if someone's pointing out to me, how I've hurt them. It is not appropriate for me to stop and say, like, I understand this has happened to me too. Cause it's still the same idea of essentially we hear information that's contrary to this, to us wanting to be seen as good people. And then we go into hyper defense mode of like, but I'm a good person or I'm oppressed too. Mm. Um, like all of these things are part of the fixed mindset tax, which is like this costly thing that happens in our brains because of self-threat, mm-hmm. like psychology, we go into this like red zone defensiveness 
that we end up worrying more about what someone thinks about us than the pain we may have caused Mm. for someone else or the pain that someone else experiences on a daily basis. Mm. And it's called, uh, Dolly Chuck refers to it as the fixed mindset tax because it taxes our brains. It's not just costly to us, it's costly to the people we're trying to support. Mm. And so in that moment, if I had said any of that, Mm -hmm. like, oh, no, no, here's the reasons why I did that, da 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 Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't matter why I did that and whether or not that was the right choice. I did something, like, something very small, but that caused harm for someone else. And and another Black woman was kind enough to point it out to me. Mm -hmm. That's where I think, and you mentioned also being a woman, and solidarity is the wrong word, but what an intersectional feminist community of relationships can look like. We, a lot of things that are feminist in nature end up being for like white women Mm. because we don't take the time to realize that there is not one experience of being a woman Mm -hmm. and there's not a single, like we can't ever ignore the intersection of race and gender in this case. Mm. And so any moment where someone is kind enough to point out something to us and we want to defend, no, I'm a good person. That's what I want us to pay attention Mm -hmm. to because in that moment, you're shutting down learning from the other person. Mm -hmm. And what happened in that scenario is I, I was so thankful to the woman who pointed it out to me. And then later in the same workshop, the woman who I had originally moved on from too quickly spoke again. And I noticed that I was about to do the exact same thing and move on. Mm -hmm which has caused a, a series of reflections for me. But I was able to talk to her and follow up and say, you know, this other woman shared this with me. I'm so grateful to her, but I'm also really sorry for you because I think you're brilliant and I think your voice matters. And I think what you shared shifted the narrative for our group. Mm. It also makes me wonder, and I'm you know, still reflecting on this because this was so recent, which is good because we should we should be able to identify something we did that's yeah. reflective of our bias within the last week. Mm-hmm. If we can't all pull up something we did that's reflective of our bias within the last week, we're not working hard enough mm-hmm. to interrupt this. Um, but I wonder if her saying something about wondering if it was my fragility that caused me to move on so quickly mm-hmm. because she said something about an experience of being a black woman that I couldn't immediately relate to. Mm. And like, did I move on from that because I was uncomfortable? Is a question I need to continue asking myself. And just for people listening, like when you say fragility, yeah, what do you mean by that? What What is meant by fragility? What is meant by white fragility? Yeah, white fragility are all the problematic things that white people do when race is brought up. Mm. When we cry, when we make it about ourselves, when we... I mean, even me just telling that story could come across as me seeking a cookie. Mm -hmm. Look how woke I was. Yes. I took the feedback. Yes. Yeah. And Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, I think I said it right. It's very important that I say it right. Um, Says, like, racism should have never happened, so you don't get a cookie for reducing it. Come on. Like, but, but it it's all the things that white people do to be like, look how woke I am, which white people, we should never say that word about ourselves, mm. ever. It's not the thing for us to bestow on ourselves. Mm. Why? Um, Why do you say that? Because it's not, it's not a term that we created. And so it's not for, it's like essentially like I'm a good ally. Mm. Like we should always be examining our actions and work to make our actions better and like not worry about bestowing labels on ourselves. Mm. Like that's not the point. 
Because that, again, that's the fixed mindset tax. That's making it about me instead of the people that I'm trying mm-hmm. to help. Yeah. Like, look how good I am. So mm-hmm. Bright Fragility can show up in cookie seeking. It can show up in crying and making it about us, especially when we hear that we've like really hurt someone. When our reaction is to cry and make the whole thing about us and our pain, it's that's that's why so many people of color will often say, I don't want to talk to white people about mm-hmm. this because they're going to make it about themselves. Mm-hmm. And that just exacerbates the trauma that we mm-hmm. create. Yeah. So let's talk about how do, first of all, how do I identify my own biases? How do we, how do I start that process? Yeah. So there are a couple of ways. You can go to Harvard's Implicit Association website. It's implicit.harvard.edu. And there are a number of tests you can take to um, understand what your own implicit bias is. Mm -hmm. Just like, for example, 75% of test takers in the U.S. across racial lines show a pro-white implicit bias. So if you take that test and you get slight automatic preference for white people, again, it's not saying you're a bad person. It's reflective of what Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum calls a smog. It's these constant associations that we breathe in that says white is good and black is dangerous or male is smart and female is not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a science teacher and I'm a leadership coach and I love science and I love leadership and I love empowering women. And it breaks my heart to tell you on the implicit association test, I can more quickly associate men with work outside the home than I can women. Mm-hmm. And I can more quickly associate men with science than I can with women. Mm-hmm. I mean, women show stronger oh. implicit gender bias against women than men do. And it's because of who gets to tell our stories. So a great exercise for people is to go, I mean, even just write down the last five books that you read. Mm-hmm or the top five podcasts that you listen to, or the shows that you watch, who are those stories written by? Who stars in them? The bookshelves that you mentioned, when I put them up two years ago, Mm -hmm. I took it as an opportunity to audit the race and gender of the authors I read. Mm -hmm. And I often ask people to guess, but then people are way more generous than what is true. It's 70% of the authors I have on my shelf are male, and 90% are white. And the 10% authors of color that I have on my bookshelves, I've acquired all in the last four years or most all of them in the last mm-hmm. four years. And so it's like, I want people to get curious with their sources of information. Look at your social media feeds. If you're following mostly white people and reading mostly white people and looking at shows and movies that are like mostly white, then who are we to say that we understand what it means to be a person mm-hmm. of color mm-hmm. in America? I think... So that's like a way to understand your biases. I think the next most important thing or equally as important is to read from and learn from authors of color. Mm-hmm. Because as white people, we can talk about how we've grown and how we've failed. But more, more than that, we need to be centering, like always asking ourselves, who am I centering with this? Am I centering voices of colors? Am I centering black women? Am I centering indigenous women, um, women of color? Because... At the end of the day, we don't know. and We can learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have so much more grace for ourselves when approaching how to do something new. Like if we want to go on a trip to a new country, we look it up. So that idea that I mentioned at the beginning of a good-ish person is someone that's taking ownership of their learning, is reading and learning from authors of color, is 
um, someone who's willing to get better at noticing their own mistakes. Because mm-hmm. if we as white people wait for other people to point out our mistakes, then we are still putting a disproportionate mm-hmm. amount of labor on people of color in a context with you know, hundreds of years of unpaid slave labor. Um, so it's like we need to take ownership for our learning, center voices of color, we need to get better at noticing our own blind spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to get better at admitting our mistakes and thanking the people that do talk about us. And then like, I think connected to that is where could we socialize this idea of being a work in progress? Where can we get better at saying, hey, I made this mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, why did I make this mistake? What, why, did I, why did I say this to that person mm-hmm. that, that was hurtful? And, like, do it with a curiosity and a grace that we get from the gospel, but to say, like, I need to learn from a perspective that's yeah. different than my own. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like, were you a um, Hunger, Hunger Games? Games? Were you a Hunger Games fan? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, spoiler alert, if you've not seen or read the Hunger Games and you plan to mute this part, <laughs> but you know the moment where she shoots the dart and the entire fake game thing yeah. comes crashing down. Mm-hmm. She like basically breaks the border on this bubble. We as white people live in that bubble and it's our job to like break the border mm-hmm. and see outside of ourselves. 2020 is in full swing and I don't know about you, but I am here for it. I'm also here human to human to ask you for support. Help me friend to help you. The Refine Collective podcast is one of my most favorite projects that I have ever worked on in my career, but it is definitely a labor of love. We have quite a bit of hard cost each month from software and subscription services to my team who edit and produce the episodes to licensing music and running logistics for all things Refined Collective. Now, because of that, I want to invite you, yes, you, to join our Patreon community. Patreon is this incredible platform that helps listeners financially support their favorite podcasts. You can support the Refined Collective podcast for as little as $5 a month. And we made a bunch of fun different tiers that are jam-packed with free goodies and VIP access to our newest content. And you will be notified before anyone else about our upcoming live events. I'll also be going to you first to find out what questions you want answered and what topics you want covered moving forward. So in the midst of a wild year, I want to ask you, friend, if you'd be willing to link arms with my team and me and sharing some of the load and helping make the Refined Collective podcast the best it can possibly be. So if you want to learn more or sign up today, head on over to patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Refined Collective. Thank you so, so much for being a part of this community. Shame isn't our friend in this case. Mm-hmm. We don't need to focus. We just need to look at our behaviors and figure out where we can be better. Yeah. And not realize that the constant struggle to not say or do the right thing or to try to do the right, to not say or do the wrong thing or to try to do the right thing and then be seen as good is the very thing that will prevent us from getting better because that's what occupies all of our heart and brain space instead of 
learning and hearing from other perspectives. Yeah, I I so hear that. And I think oh, a question I've been asking myself is like, why am I so afraid to be found out? Like we, I just did a podcast interview with um, Dr. Teresa Moscardo on imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I was, with that in mind, I was talking with my sister and we were talking about getting feedback. Yeah. And it was like so offensive to get the feedback. And then I was like, well, wait a second. Like, what if the feedback's just like neutral? Like, what if I, what if we could just receive the feedback as neutral as opposed to like, well, I did not do something wrong. Like they took that the wrong way. And I was looking underneath that and I was like, well, I think underneath a lot of that, of like, I want to be seen as a good person. I want you to approve of me. I want to be quote unquote perfect. Or I want to be seen as someone who is not racist is I underneath all that, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to seem like, I don't want to feel like a failure because we're all searching for love and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And if it's exposed that I am broken or sinful, which is feels like such a triggering word these days, just call something sin. But to say, wow, like I am not perfect. You're right. It's like, that is the beginning of growth. Mm -hmm. And I think to have that posture. And it sounds like this is like what you're all about. Like what I've heard from everything you've said is like, the first step is I have to be willing to admit that I am not right hundred percent of the time. Mm -hmm. And that I have to be, I have to have a posture of humility and I just am here to learn. I'm not here to make myself right or to make you wrong but to learn, it sounds like that posture seems like the first step to walking into like this conversation. What what would you say? Yeah. I mean, that's what a growth mindset is, is saying I am not a pre-made good person. I am a work in progress and I'm committed to learning and getting better. Mm -hmm. That's what a growth mindset is. That's what like a good-ish person says and does because In so many other spheres, we think that abilities can be developed through time, effort, and feedback. Feedback is a gift. But when when you said, like, people want to be loved, people want to be seen, people want to feel valued, so do people who experience oppression and marginalization and racism. Mm. And because of systemic bias and oppression, there are so many systems that exist that we can't even see that prevent people from feeling that every single day. Um, And I try to remind myself, because there are lots of times when I am doing like mental gymnastics about, oh my gosh, should I post this? How should I say this? How should I word this? I need to call out this person for doing this, or I need to own this mistake. And it is a lot of work and it is exhausting. Mm. And as a white woman, even who also, you know, first-generation college graduate parents who grew up through some financial challenges, but ultimately with parents who are super educated and a doctor and a nurse. The amount of work that I have to do in this area is a sliver. Like we're talking 0.0001% of what it might be to be a person of color in America. And so the work is worth it. Mm -hmm. It's hard, but if it helps other people feel seen and like nudges us to creating a world where everyone is treated like they're created in the image of God, which is what we believe, then it's, it's worth the work. Yeah. And that like the worst thing that Christians and white Christians could do is say, 
I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'm not going to say anything mm-hmm. at all because silence only helps. Silence is never neutral. Mm-hmm. It always helps the oppressor, never the oppressed. I think what you're saying, like what's coming up for me as you're talking is this idea of discomfort and we hate feeling uncomfortable. Like we avoid it like the plague. And I think we have, we have this society of like instant gratification and like do anything to avoid the discomfort. I was in a workout class last night and we did seven straight minutes of squats and the, like, it's annoying. Like it was annoying. It hurt. I wanted to stop. And the, the coach of the class kept saying, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? It feels really like, do you feel a lot of discomfort? She's like, what if we got better about sitting in discomfort instead of avoiding it? She's like, what if you decided I'm just going to keep going through this because on the other side of discomfort is growth. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, man, first of all, I love working out because I feel like I'm just learning life. You just learn life lessons, you know, but I just, I hear that with this is like, if I, as a human being chose to get uncomfortable and not avoid discomfort, not avoid pain or being uncomfortable. Like no one ever died from feeling awkward, you know? And I just think we avoid that so much. And what a privilege to avoid that, right? Yes. What a privilege to not have to be like, oh, I don't have to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that is the definition of privilege. It's like part of the facet of white supremacy culture is the right to comfort. That like, I should be allowed to go about my day feeling right and feeling comfortable. And like, no one ever died from feeling awkward. However, people are dying because people like you and me don't want to be uncomfortable. Mm. Like, this is not a life and death issue for me, and it's not a life and death issue for you, but it is for people in our country. It is for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what, like, I think we can push ourselves to remember is, like, however uncomfortable this is for me, I will never know what it's like to get pulled over by the police and wonder if it's my last moment on earth. Like some of my white friends from college, like we have bragged before about how easy it is to get out of a ticket. Hmm. And that like minor interactions with the police make me terrified, but like in a like good girl, I want to get things right and not have a mar on my record way. Like Hmm. I've never feared for my life or Hmm. questioned if someone was going to see me as human in that Hmm. moment. Hmm. And so the, I mean, even I thought about, Like, when to schedule this interview? Oh, I should put it off for a few weeks so I can do more work, so I can be more ready, so I can be more right or smart. And, like, it's like, hold up, wait. We're works in progress. And if we could just be like, we're works in progress, we're goodish, not good. And the point is to get better, not to worry about if we're good right now. Because none of us are where we need to be. I also believe that we all have a ton of strengths and that we can lead from a strengths-based perspective. That's a subject for Whole other podcast, yeah. but like, I don't bring this up so that we like flog ourselves and are demeaning to ourselves, but that like part of one of the most powerful things I ever heard from um, a gentleman out of the Bay Area at one of the Teach for America alumni conferences was, was Jeff Duncan Andrade uh, said like, white people don't engage in this work of a place of deficit. You have to engage in this work from a place of strength. Because if you disconnect from your humanity, then you've disconnected from my humanity. Mm -hmm. And I don't get to do that every single day like you do. 
I mean, part of what was so vivid to me about that Friday um, that I was telling you about, like realizing this disconnect between the, my white Christian community and the work community I was a part of. Um, and part of that being that all of my discussions on race and equity were in work. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the thing I failed to say is that I had a responsibility in that white Christian community that I was showing up one way at work and a completely different way at mm-hmm. home. And then that felt even more real when the election happened um, and where, where my responsibility lied. But I had a choice. I had a friend in from out of town to go see. And I was I was I was crying about everything that had happened that week in, in with all the leaders I coach across the country and how they were dealing with it in their communities. But I was like, OK, do I like clean up my tears and go off to brunch? Mm. Do I sit here and continue feeling this way? And it, like, even in that moment, I recognized I had a choice. Mm. My own safety and well-being didn't depend on that I chose to think about it. Like, I could dry my eyes and walk away from it and go about my day. Well, yeah. I'm like, that's what privilege is. Mm-hmm. And we should never feel ashamed of our privilege. Like, people hear the word privilege. Probably people listening right now, I'm hearing say privilege from the 17th time and, like, want to turn it off. <laughs> like, think of it as an invitation. Like, where the parts of our identity that we think the least about are where the places where we have the most privilege. And that that's where we could, if we notice where our biases are showing up, then we can use our privilege to spend it on behalf of others. Not to save it up for ourselves. Yeah, that's so important. That's such good work, Gina. If you could give just a couple practical pieces of insight or tools for myself, anyone listening to this who is like, wow, like this is kind of the first time I'm really hearing about this, or I think I might have biases or wow, I really want to unpack this idea of good person or goodish. What are, would you say five resources that someone could get started into this conversation? Yeah. Before I give you those five resources, can I bring you some wisdom from Beyonce? Uh, you can always bring me wisdom from Beyonce. I've got wisdom from Beyonce and from yes. Tracy Ellis Ross, two powerful black women. So from Beyonce, if people in powerful positions continue to hire and cast only people who look like them, sound like them, and come from the same neighborhoods they grew up in, they will never have a greater understanding of experiences different from their own. It's Beyonce. Come on, Queen. So I think that like just reminds us how, like, look at books social media feeds, movies, podcasts, like all the media that we consume and look for ways to diversify it, especially when it comes to race and gender Um, and ability and sexuality and like every dimension of identity. But like, let's just keep it simple and start with race and gender. I think the second piece of wisdom from Tracy Ellis Ross is I'm learning every day to allow the space between where I am and where I want to be to inspire me and not terrify me. And so like on this issue, like be inspired by the ways we can grow and not be terrified by them, right? Like being, be willing to sit in discomfort. Mm -hmm. So some ideas is like one, take ownership to learn more about the biases and the topics that make you the most uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And pay attention to how your discomfort comes in in your body. For me, it's tightness in my chest Mm -hmm. and a pit in my stomach. Like even noticing your physical cues of where your discomfort comes on these things will help you. Mm -hmm. So you can see it and like welcome it and then keep going. 
So I mentioned doing a book, movie, media, social media audit, like what voices are missing from your perspective. And third, practice deep listening. Like really listen to other people and focus on what they're saying, not what we think about what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So it's like listening to understand versus listening to respond. This is something I teach in my workshops all the time, like lots of live practice. But how can we really, really listen to people? I think fourth, thank anyone who takes the time, energy, and courage to point out inequities to us without seeking a cookie or trying to point out our good intentions, right? Like say thank you. And then like, get, we need to get better at noticing our own mistakes. Walked into the store last week, was looking for a jacket. It was in Patagonia, right? Privileged store to be in, expensive store. And I asked a woman like, oh, excuse me, does this jacket come in a small And she's like, I don't work here. And I'm thinking, well, why did I ask the only woman of color on this floor to get me a jacket? Mm. Right? Like, we do this all the time. And so we could get better at noticing it. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, that it's helpful to take the implicit association test if you haven't already. Like, I highly recommend it. Take more than one. There's, There's so many different dimensions. And all that data is anonymous. And even simple things like learning to pronounce everyone's name. Like never make a joke over not getting someone's name right. I used to, people say my name wrong all the time. They say Jenna, they say Gianna, they say all kinds of things. Jeannie, it's Gina. And I never used to correct people. Mm -hmm. I think it was like part of being a woman. I was just like, oh, I didn't say anything. Until I realized that me not correcting people, how people say my name, is me not spending my privilege. Because I have a white, at the end of the day, I have a white sounding name. It's spelled like French and it's pronounced Italian, but it's white sounding, Gina. And when I correct people, especially men, on my name, it makes it more okay when someone with a not white sounding name is going to, is going to get their name corrected. That's such a good point. Um, And when someone's like, yeah, I'm just going to call you this for short. No, you're not. Like the first way we create, we make someone feel seen and heard is to say their name right. And if we're not willing to do that, even when it's hard, and like, if we can learn to say Tchaikovsky (laughs) (laughs) and all these other complicated names, like we can learn to say other people's names that that aren't white sounding. Yeah. Now, do you have, this is all really good stuff. Do you have any, like if you give a couple book recommendations? Yeah. So I highly recommend The Person You Mean to Be by Dolly Chug that we've referenced many times. Uh, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi is a wonderful one. Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me. He also has one called We Were Eight Years in Power and many amazing writings for The Atlantic. Um, Minda Hartz has a book called The Memo, How to Help Women of Color Secure the Seat at the Table or How Mm. Women of Color Secure a Seat at the Table. It's a really important read for white women to understand like what it's like to be a black woman in a company. Elaine Wilteroff's More Than Enough is a phenomenal book for, like, being a woman, but it's written specifically for women of color, so there's so many gifts and gems in there that are different perspectives. Austin Channing Brown's book is really good. I know you've had her on before. Mm-hmm. She's um, amazing. Do you, I'm like, do you want me to keep going? No, these are good. So these, yeah, I mean, you can keep going, but I, I think it's so important out of this conversation to have action steps. Yeah. You know, and so you've given like all these different ways to grow and start noticing and also like start educating yourself. Like that's kind of the first step that I did was first start noticing and then let me just start reading. Yeah. You know, and we get so quick to like 
I want to put something on social media. You know, it's Black History Month. And yes, let's celebrate that. And let's talk about that. But if we're putting stuff on social media or on the internet and not doing our own personal work, like, come on. Like, that's performative. Yeah. That's cookie seeking. Yeah. That's like, it's such, I've come to learn from um, several deep friendships with friends of color that it's such a white person thing to like want to learn about something that's wrong and jump to fixing it. Yeah. Like, Let me don't show you jump how. to fixing it. <laughs> jump to the discomfort in doing the work. Mm. Because when systems of bias are made visible, there's three common reactions. You can deny, you can distance, or you can dismantle. But if you want to dismantle, you have to get up close mm. and do what Brian Stevenson would call get proximate and understand it and see it and see your place in it. Because we can't be part of the solution until we see how we're part of the problem and we are all part of the problem. So good. Shana, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing personally, professionally. Thank you so much for your words and your wisdom and the work that you're committed to. You have a lot of resources to offer people and go for it. Tell us how we can keep up with you, how we can get your resources, all the things. Yes. So you can go to my website, which is ginamarinelli.com. J-E-A-N-A-M-A-R-I-N-E-L-L-I. Love it. Uh, it's also what I am on social media, just at Gina Marinelli. Um and upcoming starting in April, I'm going to do a coaching circle for a small group of um, probably 12 to 20 women uh, to dive deep in this topic and get some coaching in small groups and like dive through the book if people are interested. So if they go to my website, they will get all that information. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thanks. But for- keep learning and growing. And yes. Pat, thank you for being such a good model of being a work in progress and like opening yourself up to this conversation too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. If you are new here, maybe you've listened for a long time and there's topics, questions, comments, concerns that you have about what we're up to, follow us on Instagram, The Refined Woman. Send me a DM and I will get back to you and let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know what you want to talk about. And I would love to make that happen for you. Have such a fabulous day. (laughs) Bye.